Hello there, and welcome to the Made for Love podcast, a Catholic podcast from the USCCB, asking the important questions about the call to love, such as... You don't like Tom Bombadil? I'm colored by the movies. Oh my gosh. (laughs) I thought they got it right. I'm canceling this interview. I'm leaving. (laughs) I'm your host, Andrew Bonapane. And we are joined by Caitlin Fasista, a.k.a. T with Tolkien from Twitter. Caitlin, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Caitlin runs T with Tolkien, a website and social media presence spreading the wisdom of J.R.R. Tolkien informed by a Catholic worldview or Catholic mindset. Is that fair to say? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I know you're you're open to people who aren't Catholic, definitely. Probably at least half of the people who follow me aren't Catholic. But I would just like to say that we are a community inspired by the works and faith of J.R.R. Tolkien. So we uh, take a more holistic approach to Tolkien, whereas a lot of people try and look at him in a kind of sterilized way without his faith. And I think that kind of gives you an incomplete understanding. That's frustrating. He's not the only public figure who kind of gets that heavily redacted treatment. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he's he's on record. We'll talk about this more later, but he's on record talking about how uh, Lord of the Rings is, I think most of our listeners probably are familiar with this quote, fundamentally religious and Catholic work, mm-hmm. uh, unintentionally in the beginning and then intentionally after that. Right. Um, you know, he's, he's pretty plain about that. And that's definitely something that uh, you've had a lot of personal experience, right? Right. I didn't even know Tolkien was Catholic until, I mean, I read The Lord of the Rings in high school and I probably didn't realize it until I was like... 20, 1920. Yeah, it's crazy. So uh, you've been hosting an annual party on or around Hobbit Day, which as we're recording this is tomorrow, but your observed Hobbit Day was this past weekend. So. Right. Yeah, we usually do the weekend before Hobbit Day. <laughs> and uh, you, you've been doing Hobbit Day parties for uh, about a decade now, which yeah. is uh, approximately one thirteenth of Bilbo's lifespan before departing the Grey Havens. That's awesome. What prompted you to start the tradition of uh, Hobbit Day parties? So this was our 10th Hobbit party, which was really big for me. But our very first one, we were in college, and it was just a movie marathon. Like, that was it. Um, I made a couple snacks, and we just watched the movies all day. And then as we started having kids, I kind of started thinking, uh, how can the kids kind of be involved? So then I made up games And then it kind of has just grown into this massive two-day party. Or this week was really like a week-long party because (laughs) I had some people coming in on Monday and some people came in and they even stayed until the next Monday. So it was just like a massive, massive party. You you practically had an octave, jeez. Yeah, it was amazing. (laughs) I'm so tired, but it was it was great. Well, you can't tell from hearing you talk over the recording. So uh, thanks for (laughs) thanks for making the time. We definitely appreciate it. So, yeah, I I guess that's where I kind of want to start in terms of getting your kids into it, because kids, you know, develop a lot of fun interests as they grow up. But have you noticed any kind of unique impact that this has had on your kids over time? Yeah, I think so. Um, My oldest is eight right now, and then my uh, second kid is almost six. And this year, I felt like they really made the party their own, which made me really happy. My oldest, she... She wanted to do different things. So she set up a face painting area where she was painting like dragons on people's faces. And then she also did a coloring contest where there were different like Tolkien themed prizes. And then my son, he wanted to dress up like a dragon. So then we created this game that was called Dragon Treasure where he had to basically defend his dragon treasure. And we had these foam swords. So you have to kind of get past the dragon. So that has been really cool to see how they take ownership out of in this thing that really started out as mine, but it has become a whole family thing. 
and makes me really happy. And they, they also invited a lot of their friends from school. So you can see that they kind of take pride in it. They feel like we're all kind of connected. We're all working towards this common goal of throwing this really special party every year. That's awesome. And roughly how many people did you have at the last one? So it's hard to know exactly because <laughs> so many people were coming in at different times and leaving at different times. But there were probably like 30 to 40 adults. Plus, you know, it's a Catholic party. So there were kids everywhere. Um, at, at least one kid per adult. Yeah. But we, I mean, our house is pretty spacious. And we also have we had the front yard and the backyard, the side yard. So we were like, there wasn't any point in time where we were all in the same room, usually. Yeah. It was just crazy parties spread out. And it was great. Yeah, sounds like a, a party of special magnificence. Is yeah. I hope so. <laughs> um, so have you seen uh, an impact on other families too? I think so. I mean, I don't want to be like bragging about it, but I mean, people tell me that they look forward to it and I feel like the kids enjoy it. And then I've always got friends kind of talking about like how they want to throw their own themed party, not not usually Lord of the Rings because they could just come to mind. But, you know, some people are like, oh, this is great. I need to throw my own Star Trek party. So I feel like it kind of gets people's gears turning in terms of like thinking of how they can kind of host community building events in their own home, I guess. Yeah, so I'm guessing this has made it easier to forge community with those families. It sort of gives them some kind of established way of doing it. Yeah, absolutely. I For a lot of my friends, this is like the only time of the year that I'm able to see them, like that they have time and everyone knows, like I already have the date set for 2022. And so everyone can kind of plan around it. And we know like this is the week or the weekend that we're all going to get to hang out. We're all going to relax. And um, it's been really nice because I had a lot of friends who flew in from across the country. and. If I wasn't throwing this party, like, I don't know if they'd really be able to justify making the trip all the way out here. So it's been a really wonderful way to bring people together. Yeah, that's awesome. And and you touched on it a little bit with your friends who are throwing like a Star Trek party or something. Mm -hmm. You know, one thing um, Tolkien talks about a lot uh, is what he calls secondary worlds, which is kind of a way of understanding fantasy. And when he was talking about this in a letter kind of talking about the appeal of secondary worlds, he said, part of the attraction of The Lord of the Rings is, I think, glimpses of a large history in the background, an attraction like that of viewing far off an unvisited island or seeing the towers of a distant city gleaming in a sunlit mist. Now, <laughs> if somebody maybe isn't interested in that particular island, if they just can't get into Lord of the Rings, but they like the idea of Hobbit parties, do you think the same approach can apply to other secondary worlds? Or do you think it uniquely suits Middle Earth? Well, I mean, obviously, I think that Middle Earth is the best. Um, <laughs> so that should go without saying. But yeah, I mean, really, I just think people love a themed party, because it's easy to kind of figure out where your place is in the whole party as a whole. Um, and it's easy to figure out what to do. Like you could say, I'm throwing a party. And it's a little bit more stressful to figure out, like, you know, what's your color scheme or what are you going to do at the party? But if you're like, I'm throwing a hobbit party, it's easy because you're like, okay, what do hobbits do? And you kind of just can replicate that. But I think it does make it a lot easier to kind of set things up and kind of to formulate what you're going to do. And then everyone else comes with the expectation if they know even a little bit about it. Like I had some friends who were like, I don't know anything about Tolkien, but I'm going to watch the Lord of the Rings movies before I come so I can like get the party. And I feel like you could really do that with anything. Like I know people have a lot of Harry Potter parties or um, my kids are, my oldest is on the last Narnia book. So she's like, can we have a Narnia party? Sure. 
Sure, kid, find somebody else's mom to run it. <laughs> yeah, like, I can do that. I don't know when we'd do it. I don't know as much about Narnia. I'm like, are there any important days in Narnia that we could choose? <laughs> they have Christmas, I guess, but yeah. Christmas is kind of its own thing You're already. You're kind of already having a Christmas party. Um, okay, I'm going to put you on the spot. Why is Lord of the Rings better than Star Trek? The way Tolkien presents the world in Middle-earth is very unique because he has such a strong Catholic mindset. So his Catholic philosophy flows through it. So a lot of things make sense in Middle-earth in the same way that they make sense in our world. Yeah, my dad is into Star Trek, but I haven't uh, given it too much of my time. I'm usually busy reading Lord of the Rings. (laughs) (laughs) But no, I think you're you're right that it reflects kind of a Catholic mindset and um, part of that notion of discovering a distant island. It's something that I don't know if Tolkien got it from G.K. Chesterton, but they definitely have that notion in common because like when Chesterton was describing his conversion in his book Orthodoxy, he talks about this in kind of the same terms. He had the idea, he never really wrote about it, but he had this idea for like an English guy on a boat who gets lost and thinks he discovers a new island but it's england where he's from and he is kind of foolish but the joke is on him and he says what could be more delightful than to have in the same few minutes all the fascinating terrors of going abroad combined with all the humane security of coming home again this at last seems to me the main problem for philosophers and is in a manner the main problem of this book how can we contrive to be at once astonished at the world and yet at home in it. How can this queer cosmic town with its many-legged citizens and its monstrous and ancient lamps, how can this world give us at once the fascination of a strange town and the comfort and honor of being our own town? Oh, that's a really cool quote. Yeah, I haven't um, read a lot of Chesterton, so I haven't thought about that. Especially nowadays when people come to the faith maybe after not being catechized but having some background in the faith, I think that experience resonates with them because they have that simultaneous experience of it being established and familiar, but also totally new to them. Mm -hmm. It's kind of that ever ancient, ever new thing. So Yeah, I definitely felt as a convert that as I was coming into the church, that everything around me made sense, which is a new thing because from where I was coming, there were a lot of things in the world that was kind of just like, oh, I don't, we don't really know why, or, oh, we don't really know what happened in this time, or just a lot of mysteries or things that didn't make sense. And so it just felt like all the gears fell into place. And it was very comforting. Yeah, I had the same experience because I'm I'm not a convert. But growing up in my Catholic parish in the Northeast, we didn't really have a sense of why we were doing what we were doing. So finally coming to it, yeah, it was kind of the same thing. It's like finally being able to understand the world once that layer of familiarity was peeled back. Mm -hmm. Okay. Here's another one. Instead of somebody who likes Star Trek and wants to try a Hobbit party, how about somebody who really likes Tolkien's works, but they just feel too busy to do the work involved in these festivities? Do you have any like practical tips to help people sort of apply this in their own lives? Yeah, I think, um, well, on my website, I have a lot of like free resources um, for throwing Hobbit parties, like stuff you can print or ideas. And then I also have... um, like some things available for purchase, like not to plug my stuff, but I have a Hobbit Party guide that you can print and it has printable stuff just to make part of it easier. But really all you need is, I mean, potatoes. I feel like that's really (laughs) the most important thing. Like if you kind of just have some good food and you have some friends, maybe you can just pop the movies in um, and it's pretty low effort. Like I spend a lot of effort because (laughs) this is like, it's, 
partially it's like my job because then I can take the, you know, the photos from the party and I can use it to like help inspire other people for their party. So it's easier for me to spend a lot more time on it because it's so wrapped up in everything that I do. But for people who are like busy, you can still have a really simple party and it still can be really wonderful. Yeah, I think you've made the Shire and Fangorn Forest in your home before, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So yeah, uh, we'll we'll definitely have a link to the website and uh, also your Twitter handle in the show notes uh, so people can take a look at uh, some photos of what you've done if they're looking for ideas and uh, get some resources there as well. We touched on this a little bit, but maybe taking a step outside of like an explicitly Catholic sense for a second. Could you say maybe a little bit more about how Tolkien's secondary world has helped how you see the primary world? Sure. So the way that he writes and the way that things work in Middle Earth or in Arda, a lot of it feels so real that it then can help me better understand the world around me where I'll be reading something and just think like, oh, like it'll just click. Or I'll be sitting in mass and I'll be like, wow, this is just like the Silmarillion. (laughs) And, uh, you know, you'll hear like a, a reading from scripture. Wow, this sounds just like Tolkien. And realizing how interconnected the two are has been really cool for me to realize. And there's a lot of things like a lot of the symbolism. Not It's not an allegory, obviously, but stuff like Lembus has helped me understand the Eucharist in a special way. Just the way that the Fellowship of the Ring like is so dependent on it. And it's this like special blessed bread from heaven kind of in a way. Obviously, it's not the real presence of anybody. It's It's just bread. Right. But without the, it, the journey doesn't happen, right? Yes. Yeah, so yeah. there's a lot of stuff like that where I'll just kind of be reading it and I'll think about it and just be like, oh, that makes so much sense. And there's also a huge theme of hope and being able to just carry on despite a loss of hope and just being able to like hold on and, and keep putting one foot in front of another. There are a lot of quotes in within Tolkien that have really helped me through a lot of like dark times. And even last night, my husband was kind of overwhelmed about the state of the world and he just had some hard stuff happening and I was like but still there is much that is fair like I'm just quoting Tolkien to him and he's probably just rolling his eyes like but a lot of it just means so much to me and has helped me kind of carry through my daily life um I had a geography professor one time who told this story about how his father could not understand how a river could flow north because rivers flow downhill and it reminded me of the tree beard thing about how he always liked going south because for some reason it felt like walking downhill. <laughs> and I love that sort of peculiar sense of humor where Tolkien just is able to recognize the funny ways we view the world and just draw a little bit of attention to them. Us just, hey, isn't it weird that we think of north and south as up and down? Mm-hmm which I bet Australians think is especially weird and people in the Southern Hemisphere because oh, their, right. maps, their maps are upside down and the Southern Hemisphere is on the top of the map. I can't even wrap my mind around that. Yeah. <laughs> um, the world becomes a more interesting place. The real world um, becomes a more interesting place when you dive into Tolkien's secondary world. Right. I feel like I have developed a, a much higher level of respect for our natural, like the created world after reading about Tolkien's secondary world, especially how much he loved trees. Um, <laughs> yeah. Trees are amazing if you think about it, but really you could go your whole life without noticing how cool trees are, how much they do for the world, like how important they are. So that's just a little thing. Like It's just things like that. Okay, I am going to talk about this book. Tolkien has another book called Tree and Leaf. I 
pestered Caitlin about it before we started recording. So Tree and Leaf is a book about writing stories that he wrote, and it includes a short fictional story called Leaf by Niggle, where it's about this artist, which is basically just Tolkien, right? who's trying to spend his whole life painting a tree, and he only ever does like one leaf of it. And then he more or less dies and goes to purgatory to finish it with this neighbor that he hates. And it's <laughs> it's one of the most touching short stories I've ever read. I don't know, maybe your mileage may vary, but he spends a lot of time talking about trees, not just trees that mm-hmm. themselves are characters, but even outside Lord of the Rings, he's still trying to wrap his mind around what it is like to interact with trees. Yes, Tolkien is definitely a tree nerd for sure. <laughs> I love that story, yeah. I haven't read it in a couple of years, but I definitely love it a lot. Um, so we'll we'll link Tree and Leaf in the show notes. There's a couple of essays, nonfiction essays in the book that get a little heady, but Leaf by Nagle, the short story in there is is excellent. Does that one have um, on fairy stories in it? Yes, it does. Yes. Okay. I thought so. Yeah. It's like you should buy The Silmarillion, The Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit, and Tree and Leaf. I feel like if you want a complete, I'm not a complete, but a pretty well-rounded Tolkien collection. Okay, so going back to On Fairy Stories, my sense of it was that his his goal in writing that is, or at least partially, to deal with the charge against fantasy, to defend fantasy against the charge that it's an escape from mm-hmm. reality, which is something that's bugged me. I mean, I'm kind of biased because I'm a movie person, so I, I'm sympathetic to this argument. I think that idea of fantasy as not an escape from reality as something that helps you appreciate reality more. Right. Is something that might help. Maybe if, if somebody listening to this sees Tolkien as maybe sort of frivolous or as a hobbit party is just, just fun. I think there's more to it there where it's not so much that, you know, elves and trolls and dragons don't exist, but it's to help you, it's to help peel back that layer of familiarity on your daily experience so you can appreciate that trees do exist. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, sometimes they look like they shouldn't, but we're so used to them that we forget that fact. Right. I I think that's probably hard for kids to grasp intellectually, but have you sensed that maybe intuitively that's something they can appreciate a little bit more? I think so. Um, My kids aren't that into Tolkien yet. I think because they know how much I love Tolkien. (laughs) Okay. But they're really into Narnia right now. So I'm hoping after they finish Narnia, maybe they'll want to read The Hobbit. But I'm trying not to push it on them because I don't want to... I don't want them to be like, ugh, my mom always makes me read this. Like, I want them to kind of, I'm like, I'll just set Tolkien on the shelf. And when they're ready, they'll pick him up and then hopefully they'll they'll get into it. They don't have to love him as much as I do. Yeah, you got to play the long game. Yes, this, this is the long <laughs> game. I'm in it for the long haul. I I, I hope that they'll they'll love it. But if they don't, it's okay. I'll still love them. But yeah, I do feel like with the whole idea of fantasy being escape from reality, I feel like with Tolkien, at least, it feels like an escape into reality where you're escaping. It's almost like this is the way things should have been. And you have the world of Middle-earth is so, obviously, there's terrible parts in it. But when you get to the Shire, it feels like home. Or you get to like, I don't know, at the end of the Lord of the Rings when when everything is kind of in peace. It just feels so nice. And, and you just kind of want to work towards making your own world more like middle earth it's like a goal to work towards i guess yeah is part of the way that i see it and then within on fairy stories the the biggest part for me is when tolkien starts talking about you catastrophe which is the happy turn so everything looks hopeless you think the war of the ring is lost and then the ring is destroyed and stuff like that and tolkien says that the resurrection is the greatest you catastrophe 
And so, you know, you think Christ is dead, but then he's back and and everything is going to be as it should. So there are a lot of little eucatastrophes within the Lord of the Rings that kind of all point us back to the greatest eucatastrophe, which is Christ's resurrection. Yeah, and it's something that doesn't it doesn't come about because the hero kills the bad guy and slays the dragon. It's something that is gratuitously given from without, from outside the main character's efforts, right? Yes, yeah. It's something that he's really tried to convey that I think does make him distinctive in kind of the world of fiction generally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he has this other this quote in um, on fairy stories about fantasy. Fantasy is made out of the primary world, but a good craftsman loves his material and has a knowledge and feeling for clay, stone, and wood, which only the art of making can give. By the forging of Graham, cold iron was revealed. By the making of Pegasus, horses were ennobled. In the trees of the sun and moon, Root and stock, flower and fruit are manifested in glory. So that feels like it's part of that escape into reality. Mm -hmm. Okay, now talking about an explicitly Catholic sense. I think you mentioned the Eucharist before as kind of something that Tolkien has helped with in terms of, you know, how he talks about Lembus bread um, being bread for the journey. So would you say the Lembus bread reflecting on the Eucharist and eucatastrophe reflecting on the resurrection are kind of the two main ways that Tolkien's works have helped vivify your faith a little bit? I think those are probably two of the most um, concrete ways, but probably the biggest, the most influential way has been the idea of providence, because in The Lord of the Rings, you don't have any reference to God in like a explicit sense, like there's no... I don't even think Iluvatar, who is the creator of Middle-earth, I don't even think he's mentioned at all in The Lord of the Rings. And yet you have Gandalf talking pretty frequently about how there's another there's another force at work and that that force is working against Sauron. And despite however powerful Sauron is, you have this fate or providence who is stronger. And you see it time and time again where everything seems lost, or you think of how many things could have gone wrong, but Providence is guiding them. And I mean, even in the way that Frodo and Sam are connected with Gollum and and the way that the story ends, the ring is destroyed through no merit of Frodo or Sam. It's really all on Providence. And, And really, our job is to go as far as we can and do as much as we can, I guess, or as to just to try our hardest. But really, it's in the hands of Providence. And we can kind of rest in that, even though we still need to, we all have a part to play, but it's not all on our shoulders. That's been really helpful for me. And then also the whole idea of just never giving up. And even though something might seem really dark for you, like you might be surrounded by complete darkness, but the idea that there is still beauty and light that exists, and even if you can't see it in the moment that you're in, knowing that it is still there. Like, so so Frodo has to leave the Shire, and he is out in, when like when he's in Mordor, he can't see the Shire, but he still knows it's there. And that's part of what is helping him to keep putting one foot in front of the other. Or um, when Sam sees, he looks up and he sees the star twinkling in the amidst the pits of hell, basically. And he's encouraged by that because you can see that you might be surrounded by, you know, just absolute death and destruction, but God is still there, even if it doesn't feel like it. Just having the security of knowing that he's still there, like, really, those are some of the biggest things. And then Obviously, there's this whole element of Marian figures in The Lord of the Rings. We've got like the beauty and majesty of Galadriel kind of in as a reflection of 
Mary as the queen of heaven. And then we have like this warrior-like strength of Eowyn, who reminds me of Mary, like stepping on the snake. So I just, I feel like I see it in every page and all together, it works together, like compounds on itself. Yeah, it's it's funny that he doesn't mention God, even though he does in other works in the same world outside mm-hmm. of Lord of the Rings, like he explicitly names who the God figure is. But that really popped out to me when Gandalf is talking to Frodo uh, about the ring and he says Bilbo was meant to find it. Yes. And, and this is supposed to be encouraging, not like Sauron means Bilbo to find the ring. He doesn't mean Sauron, mm-hmm. but he doesn't say who does is the one who meant Bilbo to find the ring. Right. That jumped out at me as like a very specific use of the passive voice. Like, I'm going to hide the person who is the subject of this verb meant. Right, yeah. <laughs> That's probably why it made it into the movie, because if, if he was more explicit about it, it would have been too, you know, religious for mainstream audiences. Well, I, I mean, I think Tolkien is a genius in the way that he wove his Catholic faith and philosophy into every page of The Lord of the Rings, but he did it in such a way that if you're completely secular, if you if you want nothing to do with religion, you can still enjoy and love The Lord of the Rings and you can get a lot out of it. And so he didn't want to set out, you know, and be like, I'm writing this Catholic book in the way that Narnia is obviously Christian. He's just like, I am here to tell this story And the story is as good as it is because of the way that Catholicism is reflected in it. Yeah, it's a great it's a great uh, kind of metaphor for how God is revealed in nature. Like Mm -hmm. you don't have to explicitly recognize that it's God, but it's there and it's animating it at every moment anyway. Yeah, totally. Speaking of a mysterious thing that Tolkien has thrown in, we talked about this in our last episode when we were talking about the Green Knight and the Lord of the Rings. Because in the Green Knight movie, there are giants that walk by our main character for no reason at all. (laughs) (laughs) Like he asks if he can ride on their shoulders and they just, they don't talk to him. They just keep walking uh, through this valley. And it felt a lot like the stone giants thunder battle scene in The Hobbit. Oh yeah. They're journeying through the woods and they just see these giants throwing rocks at each other and that's it. And they, they don't explain it any more than that. And it feels like kind of the same idea that this is, a force larger or greater than you Mm -hmm. that you don't even get to understand because that's how big this world is. I think that is part of what makes the Lord of the Rings and all of Tolkien's writings feel so real because, you know, he'll just throw in, um, and this is what so-and-so was doing on that day, and he'll never come back to it. So it feels like there's so much detail and there are so many different moving parts and different characters in different places that it does begin to feel more real because it's so intricate. Okay. Can you give us a can you give us a 30 second pitch for the Silmarillion? Okay. The Silmarillion is basically everything that happens in in the world of the Lord of the Rings up until the point of the Hobbit basically. And so you get the creation of the world, you get um all of the different battles that are happening and you also get this very beautiful love story between Baron and Luthien who are kind of like the predecessors of Arwen and Aragorn. So you can see how their story is connected. And you also have in The Lord of the Rings, they have tons of references to the Silmarillion. And so once you have read the Silmarillion, if you go back to The Lord of the Rings, you can understand it so much more fully. We got a kind of an Old Testament type anti-type situation. Mm -hmm. Yes, totally. (laughs) And there's a little bit in The Lord of the Rings when Sam is like, we're in the same tale still. And it's true. So you can go all the way back to the very beginning and you can see how everything is leading up to this point. And it's so cool. 
I mean, it helps me think about how it's the same for for us too. Like we are all connected in the history of our world and we might be playing a small part for a short time, but we are all connected. So you brought up Sam. I love book Sam and his fascination with stories. Mm-hmm. In the movies, they mention it once or twice, but they just don't have time. Mm-hmm. Where in the books, his character has grown up listening to these stories. And he was like the one who was, of all the kids, he was the one who was like most invested in Bilbo's stories. And he always dreamed of, you know, being in an adventure like that. And there's this cool meta thing going on where, I don't know, Sam just seems very endearing as a character in a great story who loves stories. Yes. Yes, he's always, it's going to be like the great stories, and and it is. (laughs) And that the Silmarillion providing like a broader context helps you understand where Sam is coming from. And you can see just how how significant certain things are in the Lord of the Rings with the understanding from the Silmarillion. Especially like, because it it describes a lot more of the Northern Kingdom, right? So you have some context for like the part of Middle Earth that the Hobbits are in. Yeah, you get that more towards the end. Yeah, the first chunk of the Silmarillion is all about like the creation and the beginning and you can see how the sun and the moon and the stars were made because everything has a myth to it and you see like the great battles and then you have these three jewels which are the Silmarils and you can see what happens with them and how it's connected and even the Silmarils are still playing a part in the Lord of the Rings so it's just super cool how it's all connected and Tolkien even wanted them to all be published together and his his editors are just laughing at him so hard. Um, buddy, like the Lord of the Rings is already too big for one book as it is. We have to be able to fit multiple books on one delivery truck. Right. <laughs> okay, great. Well, I think we can, uh, we'll leave it there. We will have links to teawithtolkien.com and at teawithtolkien on Twitter. So, Caitlin, thank you for joining us and happy Hobbit Day. Thank you. Thanks so much. You too. We have an update from our friends over at Eden Invitation. If you remember Anna Carter from our episode 70 and 71, her organization, Eden Invitation, will be premiering a new video series called Porch, and you can find the link to the trailer for that in the show notes. That'll be coming out October 11th. Pretty soon, the Supreme Court is going to be hearing a case called Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health, which is possibly the greatest challenge to Roe versus Wade and the greatest hope for an end to abortion in a generation. And national faith leaders are calling for prayer and fasting for a just decision in the case. There is going to be an informational webinar on October 14th at PrayForDobbs.com, and you can find the link to that in our show notes as well. And now back to the show. And we are back with Kara to talk more about Lord of the Rings because it is such a deep and rich world that we have entered into that it cannot be exhausted by the last two segments that we have devoted to it. So Kara, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Also, I feel like we should be clear that we're going to talk about the movie and not the books. Because I, The last time I read the book was 20 years ago, but I have seen the movies very recently. <laughs> yeah, we're definitely going to be talking more about the movies. Caitlin was our book expert. And one reason we're talking about the movies is because it's the 20th anniversary of the first movie coming out, Fellowship of the Ring. <laughs> so that's right. It has been 20 years since I read this book. <laughs> you read it when, when yeah, the movie definitely. came out. Yeah. <laughs> We will also not be talking about the Green Knight anymore. If you want to hear about the Green Knight uh, or Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, which J.R.R. Tolkien translated into English, you can check out our previous episode. 
why don't we start off, given that this podcast is called Made for Love, why don't we start off with the love story? Let's talk about Arwen and Aragorn. Gotta say, this was a huge win in the movie column in my book. I remember when I watched the first movie, part of why I wanted to read the books was because I was very curious about what happened with this love story. And frankly, it's not in the books. <laughs> Basically, Arwen just like shows up at the end. I'm like, oh, well, you know, I was I was like a young girl. This is the more exciting thing to me about this movie. But <laughs> I appreciate more about it now. But I still, I think it was a good addition. Yeah. yeah, in the books, I think it's treated more in the appendices or the supplementary material, but not the main three novels. Whereas in the movies, Arwen gets much more prominent treatment. And I think it enriches Aragorn's character too, in addition to hers. Yeah, I feel like it gives him more tangible motivation on the one hand. Just the fact that they show a lot of these flashes of his thoughts, like thinking about her. And obviously, like, he thinks that she is going to the undying land. So in his mind, like, he has given up his great love. And yet he kind of, not to say, like, he can't get over her. But, you know, there's definitely a sort of, like, somberness that, like, she is his great love. And I have found that to be like a more humanizing and compelling element to him as opposed to just sort of savior king. Yeah. One, I think yeah, she's very prominent. She's not just some person that he dated for a little while. <laughs> yeah. Aragorn is surprisingly old. He's, he's 87 and he's just part of a line of men that ages slowly. So he's known Arwen for decades and Arwen is thousands of years old. So she's she's also known him for decades. But to him, that's most of his life. So yeah, he definitely thinks like she is the one and is willing to give her up so that she can live forever with her people in the Undying Lands. He's willing to make that sacrifice for what he perceives to be her good. But she makes a choice to, in turn, sacrifice her own longevity to be with him, right? Yeah, well... Just clarity here. They never mention his age in the movies, right? This is like a totally, that's totally from the book, right? Well, let me push up my glasses <laughs> okay. here. In the extended edition of the Two Towers movie, he says his age. Oh. Yeah, there's this, there's this scene, uh, deleted scene, which they put back in in the extended edition where he's talking to Eowyn in Rohan, and she's like trying to guess his age, basically. And that's when she discovers, like, you're one of the Dunedain Rangers. Okay, I... I clearly have not been committed enough to sit through the uh, the extended editions, but okay, good to know, good to know. Which, if I was hopelessly committed to one woman and another woman who was 50 years younger than me came along with a crush on me, I would advertise my age much sooner <laughs> because I feel like that would be a very effective, that'd be a very effective way to, you know, sort of gently let her down. I will say, given, if you're going to bring up the like slight hint of a romantic triangle yeah. he doesn't seem to reject Aowen outright from the beginning yeah he seems to sort of like I I, toy with the idea yeah. for a little bit now granted you know arwen is supposedly going off to the undying lands he's like a free man but well he is wearing the even star jewel the whole time though like the the thing that arwen gave him uh as like a remembrance i think he's just nice and he's he's trying to be a supportive friend to Aowen but it's not received that way. This is a timeless lesson, gentlemen. Keep in mind, you know, just, just you know, <laughs> let a girl down more directly, you know? <laughs> Don't hang out with women, date them. 
I do support that position. Look, okay, we we did a lot of prep for this recording, and we didn't think it was going to go this direction. So this we're, is new. We're off in a weird <laughs> direction, yeah. Dating advice from Aragorn. Only date women that are 2,000 years older than you. But speaking of the romance, it's kind of funny that they like put in all the stuff with Arwen and Aragorn. And in the books, there is actually more of a romance between Eowyn and Faramir, which you only really mm-hmm. get hinted at during the crowning ceremony at the end, which I thought was, I think, a better swap. I feel like you can get the Arwen Aragorn story over like the entire arc of the three movies versus Eowyn and, and Faramir basically meet in the hospital in the third in the third book so it's okay if i was going to like make a romantic swap i think that was a good one for the for the movie's sake i agree and it also while arwen isn't in the books very much the arwen aragorn relationship is sort of uh an echo that helps convey a lot of what is in tolkien's other writings about this world Mm. uh, because there's this other story which is sort of like a precursor between these other two characters, Baron and Luthien, which takes place centuries, if not millennia, before Arwen and Aragorn meeting, where Baron is a mortal man, Luthien is an elf woman, and they also meet and fall in love. Baron dies, and Luthien dies for him, which, in that world, elves don't have to die. They can live forever. And both Arwen and Luthien make the choice to... They basically make the choice to accept death because it at least means they get to love a man. And that sort of sacrificial love is sort of a unique opportunity that this world allows by having one race that is mortal and one race that is not. Because like in our world, you can have sacrificial love involves death, but it's just sooner death. Mm. It's not death that might not otherwise have happened. So it's kind of a unique sacrifice that both Arwen and Luthien get to carry out as sort of an example of love for the reader. And this is something that Tolkien cared about a lot. This isn't just some footnote because a lot of people listening at home might already know this, but on his and his wife's tombstone in real life, he had engraved the names of those two characters, Baron for himself and Luthien for his wife. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. And apparently they're like the Luthien Baron meeting story is inspired by him and his wife. Oh, that's really cute. Yeah. So it's kind of a love letter to her. It's also like she could have lived forever and she got me instead. <laughs> Well, it's interesting you mention just like the family aspect because I also really liked as part of the movie the element that when Arwen realizes she has a vision of them having a child, that's Mm -hmm. kind of her like, I'm not, I can't go to the Undying Lands. Like there's this other fruit of our love that I already love this person that I know is going to exist and like I need to fulfill that. I don't have like a more profound point than than that, but I just it's kind of interesting to me that that was a movie only insertion. Yeah. But certainly it would seem to sort of echo, you know, sort of Christian ideals of like family, giving of yourself in a very particular way in marriage to have a family and to have kids. Yeah, I I think that's a an important moment in the movie. I think that happens in Two Towers, right? Where she is she's on her way to leaving Middle-earth and living forever with the rest of the elves. And she has this vision of her son and and old Aragorn in the future. That's when she realizes there's actually a chance she could be with Aragorn, at least for a short time. And the, the way that she realizes that her love for Aragorn is real is through seeing her son as like an embodiment of that love. This is a real thing that could happen and it's worth sacrificing earthly life yeah. for. Even though technically it wouldn't be earthly life because they'd be in frickin' Valinor or whatever. <laughs> um, the Undying Lands. But, 
Yeah, yeah, the Undying Lands. One of these days, Caitlin convinced me, I think one of these days I'm going to read the Silmarillion and just never return from that rabbit hole of like deep Lord of the Rings canon. You know, it's funny you mentioned that I almost said something about the Silmarillion little bit ago i was like oh what's that story in the silmarillion because my book my book club that i go to on thursdays they read the silmarillion but they read it like while jason and i were preparing to get married and so we like weren't going to book club so like somehow i missed my opportunity for the silmarillion and let's be real like i'm not gonna read this on my own so (laughs) (laughs) okay sort of related to aragorn he has another precursor uh, in addition to Baron and Luthien, but this one is actually in the movies, Asildor, the last king of Gondor who had the ring and lost it uh, shortly before he died. And Asildor sort of functions as a precursor not to Aragorn as political head of Gondor and the ruler of men generally, but also in this figure who desires power and has found the ring as sort of the potential tempting answer to this desire for power because carrie you were mentioning before we started the characterization of men as desiring power is like one of the first things you hear in these movies it's very basic to the setup here and so Isildur's established as this historical figure who fails to endure his desire for power or fails to resist his desire for power and takes the ring i think if you're new to lord of the rings it's kind of hard to imagine being new to lord of the rings but if you are new to it and you see that and then you see Aragorn, who's set up as like, you know, he says the same blood flows in my veins, the same weakness. You kind of expect that Aragorn's going to wind up in a similar situation where he has a chance to destroy the ring in the fires of Mount Doom. But it's not Aragorn. It's Frodo instead. What the movie characterizes as the most unlikely person imaginable. Not a great political figure. Tolkien sort of sidelines Aragorn uh, when it comes to Mount Doom and the destruction of the ring in favor of Frodo, who is the main character of the book. <laughs> I think it's interesting. There is a moment in Fellowship of the Ring where, you know, Frodo offers the ring to Aragorn. And in some ways, like, you know, he throughout the books, there are sort of these tests that different people have to pass. And I feel like Aragorn, that's sort of like one of his early tests because, and we can talk about this later, but it seems as though, you know, Aragorn is sort of on a journey of accepting the cross that is in front of him, which is to become king. He has otherwise rejected it and been running away from it. And at one point, you know, Frodo is Frodo is like, I can't do this. Like, you take the ring. You know, you're strong and savvy and like, you can do it. And Aragorn, there's a long moment where he's clearly allowing the temptation to be felt. And he closes Frodo's hand over it and says, no, it's certainly Aragorn's, his rejection of it. In a very humble way, there's no way I can do that. That's also like not my, that's not my cross. That's not my journey, which I think is like an interesting insight about Aragorn's character. Obviously, he has enough wherewithal and insight to be like, no, this is not for me. And also like that would be very dangerous, but also interesting for him and sort of like setting him off on a path for his own sort of discovery. And that accepting that call, I think it's harder for him in the movies than it is in the books. Mm. But it still does demonstrate that turning away from a desire for power. It's funny that becoming king is him exhibiting less control over the world than if he had taken the ring. That's kind of what his becoming king is built on. Because like in the last battle, his big dramatic speech to rally the troops at the Black Gate of Mordor ends in, this is going to be for somebody else. This isn't for ourselves. This is for Frodo. Mm. 
And so his like his rule is kind of built on wielding all of this power totally for the good of somebody else and not for our own sense of control. There's really sort of two Christ figures who sort of occupy different spaces. And and yeah. I think that you know what you're talking about here is Aragorn. I mean, he's he is the physical descendant of Isildur. And certainly watching it this time around, I felt like it was more obvious to me that Isildur sort of embodied the idea of original sin that, you know, he thought he could wield the power in the same way that, you know, Adam and Eve sort of think that like knowledge and parody with God is possible and it's not. So Aragorn is the like actual descendant of Isildur and bears that mark and is sort of working his way throughout the movie to a more sacrificial version of like what man should be and rejecting that sort of thesis at the beginning that the thing that men desire most is power. He's specifically rejecting that and sort of purifying it in a sort of Christ-like way. But at the same time, I agree with you that like Frodo is a different sort of embodiment of, of a Christ figure by being unexpected. And he has the very specific mission of getting rid of the thing that needs to be destroyed in order to like redeem the world and like defeat evil. So it's in like, it seems like it's kind of like broken apart into sort of different elements. And I know that, that Tolkien did not want to have something that was like, obviously like a Christ figure. So it makes sense to me that he would have sort of like split these elements up into multiple characters. And I think he, he successfully avoided that like very obvious allegory because Aragorn sidelines himself. Frodo is the one who is quested with destroying evil, but he fails. And it's what Caitlin was talking about in the first segment, about the catastrophe is what saves the day, that sort of idea of this good turn of events that comes from without. It's not because of a hero made a heroic choice to win the day and destroy evil. Frodo doesn't do that. He tries to take the ring for himself. Gollum snatches it from him. And in the process, Gollum falls with the ring into the fires of Mount Doom. But neither of them intended to destroy the ring at the very end. It happened as a good turn of events in the world, willed by a, a higher power, or at least willed by something outside the characters, including the, the two uh, guys who are sort of trying to fill the messianic shoes, but neither of them ultimately do. Caitlin said an interesting thing too, Kara, that she was talking about the ring and it's temptation that it's going to grant you power over the world as kind of a perfect machine where the dangers of machinery and industrialization and trying to control the world are a big theme elsewhere in Lord of the Rings, especially with uh, Saruman destroying uh, Fangorn Forest um, and also the scouring of the Shire, um, which doesn't happen in the movies. It's a little dark. The end, the end of the third book is very dark, <laughs> you have to say. It's a theme uh, that Tolkien cared about a lot. And these are related notions because the, the ring represents kind of the perfection of that desire to control nature. That really hit me because it brought to mind uh, some things that we at Marriage Unique for a Reason have talked about with regard to human ecology that the last three popes now have been talking about, where they've connected um, environmental themes with the human impulse for power. Um, so I got a quote here from JP2 in his encyclical Centesimus Annus. At the root of the senseless destruction of the natural environment lies an anthropological error, which unfortunately is widespread in our day. Man, who discovers his capacity to transform and in a certain sense create the world through his own work, forgets that this is always based on God's prior and original gift 
of the things that are. And then Pope Francis builds on that in uh, Laudato Si. He says, the acceptance of our bodies as God's gift is vital for welcoming and accepting the entire world as a gift from the Father and our common home. Whereas thinking that we enjoy absolute power over our own bodies turns often subtly into thinking that we enjoy absolute power over a creation. So there's this connection that the popes have talked about and Benedict in between them, we don't, we just don't have time to get into it, have talked about where our trying to exert power over the world is related to our trying to exert power over our own nature, because we're so, we, we desire power above all else. And I think Tolkien was right on there, except instead of the ring, we have the industrial revolution in, in Tolkien's mind. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Well, certainly you could substitute the word power for pride or control. And I think, you know, yeah. it doesn't take an environmentalist to see the ways in which we so often try to control our surroundings. To think that you can control your surroundings in like some sort of primary sense is to imply that you ought to in a way that is very prideful. Similar to that is everybody's belief when they encounter the ring, they become deluded into thinking that they control the ring. You know, like think both Isildur is there saying, I'm going to use the ring Boromir says it, why don't we use the ring for good? And it takes somebody of higher virtue who is able to reject pride to say that it's impossible. It's impossible to control a thing in which like was not for you or from you. You know, like this is, it is specifically an agent of the evil one. Like what makes you think that you could control it? And I, of like pride is what makes you think that. (laughs) But it's also like, you know, I think it's it's the like believing the lies of the devil, right? Like, I think this is why or it's so interesting to me, this kind of parallel with original sin is believing the lies of the devil that, oh, if you eat the fruit of the tree, you become like God. And and that is like, there's a kernel of truth in there about, about insight and knowledge, but you're not God and you have now actually ruptured the relationship you were supposed to have with God. This kind of both like the ring as perfect machine makes a lot of sense in that way because yeah, if I if I have the ring, I can control the ring. It's like, no, that's not the way it works. That's not the reality of the situation. But the devil makes you think that that's the situation. So kind of on that note about the struggle with the ring, we get to see its impact on two characters primarily, Frodo and Gollum. And they're both very vulnerable to sin and temptation. And this is something obviously that Gollum gives into and Frodo resists most of the time, not perfectly, not always, not even when it matters most, but most of the time it's something he's always struggling with. And he, this is his burden to carry. Right. And I think part of the, part of the reason it's his is because he's not a very powerful figure on his own. Unlike, Boromir or Aragorn or Gandalf or Galadriel, for whom the ring would represent an even greater temptation because of their existing natural powerful capacity. Whereas for Frodo, because he's already a little guy, the ring isn't going to tempt him as much, but it still does. And he just barely makes it hanging on by his fingernails at the very end. And one of the recent times I was watching Return of the King, because I've watched it a few times, (laughs) (laughs) after the ring has been destroyed, And Frodo and Sam are going back out to the exterior of Mount Doom. And Frodo realizes that it's gone. 
and it's not coming back and his facial expression changes from how it's been the entire movie basically where it's like this final ultimate relief like sam says in in the two towers it's only a passing thing this shadow and that the burden that frodo was carrying seemed like it would be with him forever because it was so oppressive and it was so immediate you know he was wearing it around his neck and yet even that passed away and Frodo got to enjoy a time, even though he couldn't really ever go home. And even when he went back to the Shire, he didn't, he didn't feel whole. In this moment, he didn't have to deal with sin anymore. And like, he probably thought he was going to die shortly thereafter because he didn't know the eagles were coming. But it's a pretty rare thing in movies, I think, to have that sort of unqualified relief. Just as you're talking, and I realized this during the movie, just, you know, the first you know, a couple of times I've seen these movies, you're sort of enjoying them for, or I was just enjoying them for the story that they are. But the more I sort of reflected on this idea of like the ring in a way sort of representing original sin and like the idea of the weight of sin and how it has a corrosive effect over time, I thought that was really interestingly illustrated with this. Where Even though Frodo doesn't put the ring on, the fact that it is around his neck at all times sort of has this corrosive sort of ongoing impact on him. And I think, you know, it makes it much harder for him to resist at the end because he's been on this journey for so long. And I think that, you know, that's true for most of us, the corrosive effects of sin. And certainly when you're like deep in it, when you can't see a way out, you know, I think there are times when it's like, well, and how many people have you known or like certainly had times to think of like even though you know that you should turn away from sin it's hard and like well because I'm the kind of person who now sins that means I can't turn away from it and I I feel like that's sort of what's happened or that's definitely what happens to Frodo over the course of the story he becomes somebody who becomes identified with the ring like the ring is his cross so much so that he like can't actually get rid of it when the opportunity is is in front of him and that relief that you mentioned, it just, you know, as somebody who has gone through a like reversion in their life, it is like a really wild feeling to be sort of on a path and to take a complete, you know, right or left turn and be like, I don't have to deal with any of these things anymore because I have been actually relieved of the burdens of my sin. Um, and like he has been physically relieved of his burdens, the rest of us is, you know, spiritually. But I think it's a very visceral kind of reality about the weight of sin. Yeah, it's like paying off your student loans, but morally. <laughs> That's a yes. I think I think there's probably like if you're if you're not a if you're listening to this and you're just waiting for us to be done talking about Lord of the Rings, you're not much of a, you know, fantasy or movie person. I think there's another way to reflect on the idea of humanity without sin. The Immaculate Conception probably affords like much richer material for reflection and contemplation because that I think is the real example of this that humanity can exist without sin God has given Mary that grace that she lived and died and was assumed into heaven without sin and so some of what I experienced probably a lot more than what I experienced with Frodo can be gained that way too Lord of the Rings has been useful for me but you don't need it to get the same point just like if you're more holy yes, than right. we are, you can certainly access this information in other right. ways. <laughs> Holier and less uh, visually consumeristic. <laughs> oh, wait. This is becoming a recurring segment. We got another hot take from Kara. <laughs> it's 
my specialty. Apparently, especially about this movie. Okay, so just speaking of like accepting crosses and roles, I gotta say, I found AON extremely annoying on this watch. When I was younger, I sort of appreciated the like feminist, I have been refused my ability to prove myself in the field of battle. I watched it this time and like, girlfriend, you have a job to do. Like you have been put in charge of your people. And basically she just like up and leaves. It's like, no one's in charge. Nobody is there to like lead them to do whatever is next. She's like, "Uh uh-uh, I'm going to fight in battle. Peace out, homies. Not cool. I was not okay with this. (laughs) That's a funny one because yeah, I think Eowyn is a, you know, positive literary role model especially at the time i'll give her she's noble and her desire to protect her people at the time you know when this when the book came out in the 50s too she was pretty exceptional i don't think there were a lot of literary characters like her but no i i I see your point like the you know killing the witch king of angmar is flashy but caring for the sick kids of rohan and the the people there who are like left over after two wars uh, that's hard and not glamorous, but also also worth doing. <laughs> okay, we could probably leave it there for now. That concludes our initial two-episode look at Lord of the Rings. But we might return to it one day. The last pages are unwritten. The last pages are for you. So with that, we will... Are you going to sail off into the sunset to the lands? Yeah. <laughs> We're sailing to the undying lands. Of this episode. <laughs> This episode is sailing to the Undying Lands. There it is. There we go. (laughs) But we left behind like the other hobbits are watching Frodo sail into the sunset. So we'll be back next time to keep writing pages in this book. Kara, thanks for joining us. (laughs) Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening this week. Please share this podcast with your friends. Be sure to subscribe for free wherever you find your podcasts and leave us a review on iTunes. We really appreciate it. Bye now. God love you.